Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. WBZ, your J Talk, and we are live, midnight to five. I'm very glad to be back. I'm honestly not just saying that. It feels good to sit in the seat here. Felt good to come in, say hi to Dan Ray. It's really pleasant hanging around with Dan and Nancy and Rob and Mark Lavallo. That's basically basically who's here when I get in. And of course, one of your favorites and mine, we have Bob Allison who is a trustee of the Constitution Museum, that's the USS Constitution, Constitution Museum, and professor at Suffolk University, and a guy who loves history. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Bradley. Welcome back. And we have a back-to-school edition, correct? Yes. We'll yes. talk about Massachusetts educators. But first, I saw you, I have seen you since our last meeting here. You invited me to an event at the Constitution Museum. Yes. Can you t- talk about what happened? Yeah, this was our salute to maritime heritage, and we were giving a couple of awards, the Charles, no, I'm sorry, the Samuel Elliott Morrison Award to um, really one of the most prominent authors of maritime history, Ian Toll, who's writing a trilogy on the Pacific War. He also wrote a book about the founding of the Navy, Six Frigates, about the early Navy from the 1790s to the War of 1812. So, the Samuel Elliott Morrison Award is given to someone who writes maritime history, and it's actually a block of live oak shaped like a book. That is the award, and also an award for um, historic preservation. This is an award we gave to the schooner Ernestina, which is a, um, a sloop, a late 19th century sloop that's being restored down in um, New Bedford. It's a great story of this um, sloop being restored uh, it spent some time in the um, Cape Verde Islands and was given back to the United States, people of the United States, by the people of Cape Verde after uh, in the late 1970s, I believe. So, Is that the, like the state ship? Or the it is. St- it is. That's right. It is boat? the official state, Massachusetts state boat. You know, we have a lot of official state things in Massachusetts. Yeah. and It's a school project for a number of schools to have something designated. In this case, it's a good thing. Uh, the USS Constitution is the official United States ship of state. Yeah, but we have uh, in Massachusetts has an official state heroine, um, Deborah Sampson. We don't have an official state hero. Interesting. Who's Deborah Sampson? Might as well. Deborah Sampson. Drop the name. Uh, she, she was a woman who, um, in 1781, she dressed as a man and enlisted in the Continental Army, and she was wounded twice. The uh, first time, she dug the bullet out herself. The second time. Uh, she couldn't. She was discovered, and um, the I, the fact that there was a woman dressed as a man 
um, was brought to the attention of Henry Knox, who arranged for her to receive an honorable discharge. So she is the first woman to receive an honorable discharge from the United States Army, and subsequently she went on a lecture tour. Now, there's a wonderful um, actress, uh, actor Judith Kalora, who portrays Deborah Sampson, and uh, Judith also portrays Krista McAuliffe, an educator we'll be talking about later on, but um, does a terrific one-woman show about Deborah Sampson, also a terrific one-woman show about Krista McAuliffe, an educator from New Hampshire who um, has a tragic end, but an inspiring story. This is unrelated, but I I don't know the state bird, do you? Is it the chickadee? I don't know. I think it may be the chickadee. I'm sure someone knows. I should know that. I feel yeah. you start saying there's a, yeah. there's a state everything. Yeah. I know very few of the state Massachusetts state things. Yeah. I don't even know the bird. I, I now yeah. I only know Deborah Sampson. You know Deborah Sampson, yeah. Okay, and back to six frigates. The, yes, those six frigates were. Comp- they made up the navy. Yeah, that's at it. one point there was yeah. six. Yes, ships. Yeah, so the USS Constitution being one, and the Chesapeake, the Congress, the President, the United States, uh, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two. So the Constitution was different than the others? They were all built the same, built the same plan. So Joshua Humphreys, a ship designer in Philadelphia, did the plan, and because we only could build six, the British had about um, a thousand ships. We couldn't build- Way bigger than ours, too. Bigger than ours. So the idea is each of these ships will be powerful enough to defeat an enemy equal size or smaller, fast enough to get away from something bigger. And that was the mission, and that's what they did. Constitution is the only one left. And the Constitution uh, being old Ironside's name because the cannonballs would bounce off. Yes. In reality, they only bounced off because the ship was far enough away, correct? That plus the live oak timbers. Live oak Indigenous to North America. Did the others not have live oak? No, no, they didn't. Oh, we have live oak. They don't. And a lot thick live oak allows the cannonballs to bounce off, and because it has some give to it. Yeah, yeah, and also it's impervious to rot. So the live oak frame and keel of Constitution are the only original parts. Oh. There, you know, and and actually today I had a great experience. My class on Boston went to Charlestown, and Bobby Powers, who's a Charlestown poet, gave us a tour of Charlestown. He is a real townie, and he showed us. Um, sites of Charlestown, and he concluded actually in the Navy Yard reciting Old Ironsides, Oliver Wendell Holmes's poem. And folks, uh, Bobby Powers, you may know Bobby Powers as Bobby from Charlestown, who calls us frequently. He's a very regular caller, and he does know his he stuff. So he does. spoke to your students? Yeah, he led us from uh, City Square Park up to the Bunker Hill Monument, then down to the Navy Yard, and it was great. He really told stories all along the way about Charlestown from the 1630s when John Winthrop and the Puritans arrived to uh, when um, John F. Kennedy knocked on his uncle's door to ask if he could help with his campaign for Congress in 1946. And then um, Bobby's youth in Charlestown and adulthood in Charlestown. So it really was um, How did you hook up with Bobby from Charlestown? Bobby from Charlestown contacted me because he knew I wrote Boston History, and somehow he had heard my name, and so he came, he's come to see me a few times with his books of poetry and talked about Charlestown and history, and he's also involved in the Charlestown Historical Society, and you know, so we just developed a friendship because he is also interested in history and you know, is very thoughtful and uh, writes these uh, poems because he is so impassioned about his neighborhood. 
And then poems aren't that bad. I no, mean, yeah. no, yeah. I should say they're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> Sorry. right. Yeah. They're not that bad. Bobby, if you're listening, they're good. I have, two, good. I have two of his books. Yeah. I, they might be the same. I think they might be the uh, same copies of the same book, but still I have two. And I guess we can move on. That was really fun. Oh, you, I mean, there's more to that event that you invited me to than you've shared so far. Yeah, yeah. There were those two speeches. There was, of course, the, the good snacks, mm -hmm. but there was the firing of the. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's called Colors. Colors, Evening Colors. Evening yeah. Colors, which color. I have never been part of. Yeah. And I was. Why don't you. I could tell the story, or you can tell it since you're the guest. Why don't you. Well, you were on Facebook Live with it. It was, you know, they lower the flag and yeah. they fire a cannon salute every day at eight in the morning and at sunset. Constitution fires its gun, a salute. And then they lower the flag and they play taps as the flag comes down, the ensign comes down. And if you happen to be in the Navy Yard when they're raising or lowering the flag, you'll see all the sailors, wherever they are, stand still and salute. They, they stand at attention for the uh, saluting the flag of the United States. And um, I can hear the salute every morning at 8 in my house in South Boston. That's it, cool. It, yeah. And one day it happened that uh, my sons and I were hiking up in the Blue Hills, and it was noon on Washington's birthday. Constitution fired a 20, fires a 21-gun Wow. Salute. We could hear it up there at the top wow. of the Blue Hills. Yeah, so it's a great thing to be part of, to be on deck of this ship when they um, lower the colors, they fire the gun, and it's really a great event. It's a great treasure that we have. In I've been on that ship for decade, decades, and um, to be there at first sun, sunset, I like sunset because yeah. oh, yeah. it's it's not hot. Right. Everything looks better in sunset. Yeah. And just the the, the decks, the, the wide boards, the different widths of the boards, all the details. Oh, yeah. And then uh, the firing of the cannon. Now they let, they they seem to give the honor of firing the, yeah. the cannon to various people. And yeah. this time it was the person who won the award. Yeah, Ian Toll had to fire the gun. Yeah. And I remember, oh, they hand out uh, ear protection. That's right. For, for anyone who wants it. Yeah. And I did take it. Yes. Yeah. And then... Uh, they're very exact about when it happens, and I remember that uh, Mr. Toll, like we had to get him. It's like, let's go, we gotta go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he goes down below deck. Yes. And then and you knew this, I didn't know it, but the flag starts to go down, mm -hmm. and the cannon goes off right away. Oh yeah. I I yeah. was going to try to yeah record it, and I did, but just barely got my phone out. Pow! Yeah. yeah. That thing goes off. And it's cool. Yes. And you can. I didn't. Sm do you smell gunpowder? Not really. I didn't no, smell no, gunpowder. Really. Is it some other powder than gunpowder? No, they do use gunpowder. They don't use a lot. I know a few years ago, some of the neighbors in some of the high-end condos in Charlestown were complaining. Really? And I think the captain started using heavier charges after that, just because they were saying, oh, we don't like having this noise every morning at 8. It wakes us up. So he made it louder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So we're going to talk about historians, uh, mass educators. Excuse yes. me, mass yes. educators, not historians. And I guess we can start with, uh, should we start with the people or start with the, the Constitution, the, well, the, the laws? Well, we can that... go back even further because from the very beginning, education was something that people in Massachusetts did. You know, they have the, uh, okay, in 1647, the Massachusetts General Court passes a law which is popularly known as the Old Deluder Act. And it begins by saying that it being one of the chief the be, being one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from
from knowledge of the scriptures as in former times by keeping them in an unknown tongue, so in these latter times by persuading them from the use of tongues. That is, the old deluder Satan wants to keep people from understanding the scriptures. Therefore, it's the responsibility of every parent to teach their child how to read, but this uh, that's what they had said in 1642. Five years later, they stepped that up and say, any town that has more than 50 households has to pay for a grammar school to teach children to read and also prepare them for admission to college. So the state, the commonwealth or the province makes it a requirement of every town to have a school. That is, they have to pay someone to teach. You know, in the, under the previous law, you could teach your children how to read. This one says you actually have to pay someone in the town yeah. to do this. This is a unique thing in the new world, this idea that every town has this responsibility for teaching the children in the town, and not just the children of the elite. It's the children of everyone have to learn how to read. Other state, other colonies didn't have that? They other. didn't. No, Connecticut and Rhode Island follow suit after this and have a similar requirement. But this is such a unique thing for Massachusetts to require education. And it continues. Throughout the colonial period, we're establishing grammar schools, which are for essentially to give you the third, a third-grade education. And if you were bound for college, which not every, very few people were, you would have to learn Latin. The entrance exam to get into college was to be able to read and translate a passage in Latin. So you would need to do that in order to go to college. And probably one or two percent of the um, population was going to college because it wasn't for everyone well into the 20th century. But here we do want everyone to be able to read and also to do some simple arithmetic because you are going to need that, believe it or not. Do This is beyond your job to know, but what was the situation in England? Did, did communities in England no. require? No, no. There's so this no is a really different situation. Yeah, yeah, if you're an aristocrat in England or a member of the merchant class, yes. If not, and this remains well into the 20th century. The class structure in England is such. There's a an anecdote that Anthony Trollope, the British novelist, makes. He visits New York in the 1860s, and he is stunned. He comes out of the Metropolitan Opera, and there is a line of cabs, and every cab driver has a newspaper. You wouldn't see cab drivers in London reading the newspaper. But here in America, every cab driver reads the newspaper because everyone has to know what is going on. So what do you think uh, is the, well, how much of the United States' success stems from educating everyone? A lot, correct? A lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is really the basis of New England's economy. We have an educated public. And it's not just because we want them to be successful. It's because, well, in this case, to uh, prevent that old deluder Satan from misleading us, but then in uh, the 1780 Constitution that John Adams writes, this is, sets up the framework of government, and it is the oldest functioning written constitution in the world, and it sets up the three branches of government and a two-house legislature, and each branch is a check on the other. So a system of checks and balances and mandating a separation of powers. But Chapter 6 says that wisdom and knowledge, as well as virtue, diffused generally among the body of the people being necessary for the preservation of their rights and liberties. So that's one thing. You know, wisdom, knowledge, virtue have to be diffused generally among all of the people to preserve their rights and liberties. And as these depend on spreading the opportunities and advantages of education in various parts of the country and among the different orders of the people, 
it shall be the, the duty of legislators and magistrates in all future periods of this commonwealth to cherish the interests of literature and the sciences, and all seminaries of them, especially the university at Cambridge, public schools, and grammar schools in the towns, to encourage private societies and public institutions, rewards and immunities for the promotion of agriculture, arts, sciences, commerce, trades, manufactures, and natural history of the country, to countenance and inculcate the principles of humanity and general benevolence, public and private charity, industry and frugality, honesty and punctuality in their dealings, sincerity, good humor, and all social affections and generous sentiments among the people. That is, Adams saw education as critical, not just so that people will be able to learn to read and write and be successful, but so that they'll be decent people and be able to get along with one another. And it is among all classes of people. We're not just going to educate the elite and then have an underclass. Everyone will share in this. Everyone will be educated. So it's a mandate that the Commonwealth creates from the very beginning. So education is important for a strong middle class. It is. It is essential. One thing that's interesting to note, what did you say, 1640? the old Deluder Act. Act. It shows you how every aspect of life was completely dictated by religion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. Everything, yes, yeah. It wasn't just general wisdom that said, at that point, it'd be good if the people were educated. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, we have to... Watch out for the old deluder. We have to protect ourselves against the old deluder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He wants us to be ignorant, and so we're going to fight it with education. That's right. Well, we have three minutes to get started on, I guess... Horace Mann. Horace Mann, okay. Grows up in the town of Franklin, and named for Benjamin Franklin. And Horace Mann never went to college until he was in his 20s. He worked on a farm. Benjamin Franklin had sent the town 200 pounds worth of books. They wanted Franklin to buy a bell for them. They said, we'll name the town for you if you send us a bell. He said, I think you need sense more than sound. I'll send you the value of a bell in books. They were kind of, they weren't really happy with that, but he sends this collection of books. Horace Mann, a kid working on a farm, reads the books, and then he becomes a poly, he becomes a lawyer. He goes to Brown when he's in his 20s, graduates from Brown, becomes a lawyer, and is, enters politics. He's elected to the Massachusetts State Legislature and the Massachusetts State Senate. He becomes president of the state senate, which we know is a very important office, probably the most powerful office in the state. And let me know when we need to take a break because I have plenty more to say about Horace Mann. And I don't 60 want seconds. 60 seconds. So Horace Mann, as president of the state senate, sees the imperative to create better schools in Massachusetts following the mandate of the Massachusetts Constitution. So under his leadership, Massachusetts creates a state board of education, and he leaves the state senate to become the secretary of this board of education. And when we come back, I'll tell you what happens next. Okay. Uh, when they were— the people of Franklin, yep. when they when they were asking for a bell, were they already the a town called Franklin? No, they weren't a town called so they, Franklin. They yeah, it's a name naming, naming opportunity. That. Yeah, they said so they them, said Ben, look, uh, yeah, send us a bell. We'll name our town after you. Yeah, exactly. It was in about 1780. He's <laughs> off in Paris, and you know he gets this letter from this town in Massachusetts. He was born in Massachusetts. And naming he, rights. Name exactly, exactly. Yeah. And sent them books. And I wonder. Said, you know, it'd be interesting to know. The list of those books. Actually, they still have them in the town of Franklin. That they're is, in the library. Yeah. That is cool. All right, we're with Bob Allison, and we were talking. We are talking about Massachusetts 
educators, famous Massachusetts educators. It is the Back to School episode with Bob Allison. And we got into Horace Mann. We did not finish. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about the town of Franklin, and we got more information on the books that Franklin sent to the town of Franklin, of Franklin in return for naming the town, yeah. for, for naming rights of the town of Franklin. It had been Exeter. It had. It had, and they changed it to Franklin. They said, they were... we'll actually change the town. See, I was thinking they just, no. they weren't a town yet. It was a loose collection yeah. of buildings, and they said, let's be a town. Yeah. So they said, we'll, name, we'll rename the town. Yeah, yeah. And so they wrote to Benjamin Franklin asking him to send a bell for their uh, meeting house steeple. Yep. And as I said, he said, you need sense more than sound. And So tell me about a Dr. Price. Dr. Uh, Richard Price is a British scientist. I believe he... Uh, a f- natural philosopher like Franklin. And Price is also a free thinker like Franklin. And he asks Price, who's in London, to select books. Franklin is in Paris, and he thinks that most of the books he could select would be in French. So he wants English books, and he does select a broad range of books. You know, there are some um, theology books. He has a couple of uh, Jonathan Edwards' book and a collection of sermons. Because, you know, Franklin knows this is a New England town, but he also has one of Price's books. And he also has some Roman history, Tacitus, the Roman philosopher, and probably Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, I think a year or two ago, the town of Franklin in their library put the books in a special case so they uh, you can go and look at them. You would think that would have happened before this. You would think it would. For many years, for probably a century, they were actually in the town clerk's house. I think they were kind of upset. They wanted a bell for the meeting house, and then they get a box of books. And so they say, okay, we'll create a library, which they do in 1790. The year Franklin dies, they accept the books, they change the name to Franklin. And so if you want to look at one of these books, you can come to the town clerk's house and take a look. It takes them a while to build an actual library. In so Franklin. each time there's a new town clerk's town clerk, they move the books to the new yeah, town clerk's usually, house? Usually town clerk stayed in the position for a long time. Okay. So it's, not a, it's a job that requires a certain degree of commitment. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, they would. And so anything could have happened to them. I would be interested to see a complete list of those books. Oh, yeah. That would be interesting to see. Maybe we could have someone from Franklin come up and um, talk about them. Now, there must be more about Horace Mann. There's a lot about Horace Mann. So, as I said, president of the state senate sees the importance of education. They create this um, school board. And what he wants to do is see, okay, each town is mandated to maintain a grammar school. How are they doing? So he travels throughout the state, going to each town to see how the schools are being conducted. And he sees a wide variety. You know, some are conducting a school for eight months of the year, some for two months of the year. And in some, all the kids are going, and in some, you know, whoever shows up. So he sees there's this wide difference. So what can you do about it? Most of the towns, they hire someone to teach the school. And often, it's either a young man who's, you know, reading law or wants to do something else. So for a time, we'll teach school. And Sometimes it's a young woman. There are a lot of young women teaching school in Massachusetts because it's one of the occupations open to women because women also have to learn to read and so on. And so this is something they can do and earn money doing. And so wide variety. And what he wants to do is establish some kind of a standard. She says, why don't we create a college to train teachers? And it's called a normal school because the idea it's a French idea for a norm. You establish a norm, a standard. And so the first normal school becomes um, Bridgewater State College, the Bridgewater State Normal School. And then they create one in um, 
Fitchburg and in Framingham. So open normal. normal means adheres to a, a yeah. set of norms Norm. or standards. That's right, exactly. So these are the fir- the state teacher colleges that open in the between the 1830s and the time of the Civil War, creating these schools mainly for women that will teach them to be teachers. And in the 1960s, these become the state colleges. So Bridgewater State. I, I'm sorry. I think the first one was Framingham, and I'm sure someone in Framingham is listening, saying that was wrong. It's actually, or it could be Bridgewater. Um, these state colleges are really started as a way to train teachers to establish a norm so that in, when they're working in the schools, they will then be doing, you'll be getting the same education in Holyoke as you would in Fitchburg or Duxbury or Roxbury or any other town in Massachusetts. While we're, speak, we're speaking of schools, let's talk about summer vacation. Summer vacation only existed because... They needed to plant or hay or, right, or yeah. it had to do with the farming. And there's no farming anymore. And I just would like to go ahead and say that there should be no summer vacation. That's there's heresy. no need for it. It's a, it's a waste of – for me, it was always boring. Okay. I think that there should be four quarters and you get like a week in between each one and that's it. Well, I, I disagree. All and right. I don't know if it's go special ahead. pleading on my part because I like having summers off. Yeah, and also my my mother in law, <laughs> my mother my actually my mother in law's mother actually went to the Cape Cod Normal School, which is now Four Seas, and she became a school teacher. And a lot of school teachers, it turns out, um, would summer on Cape Cod when it was cheaper to do that. And my mother in law was born on Cape Cod, so not only do I have summers off, but I have a place on Cape Cod. So I'm definitely against. You're going to vote against school. that. Yeah, def- definitely. <laughs> I remember in 1960, my sister writing a letter to President Kennedy's campaign because she had heard he wanted year-round schooling, and so Jackie Kennedy sent a nice letter to my sister squelching that particular ugly rumor. Um, although he valued education, as he says in his uh, speech to the Massachusetts legislature. But yeah, Horace Mann creates this standard and. He's actually working with Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, who's another of the great educators of the time. And she had been a school teacher. In fact, she taught school in Boston alongside Ralph Waldo Emerson. They were both young school teachers. And she is the one who introduces the idea of kindergarten in America. It was a German idea for younger children not to have a regimented education, but to have a place uh, where they can come together with other children and learn to play kind of socially. And it's really uh, growing. Much of the idea of education in the 19th century was about growing as opposed to let's drum facts into the heads of these children. And most people, to be honest, would have the equivalent of what today we would call a third grade education. That is, they could read, write, do simple arithmetic, which is probably what most, all most of us need. Some people will go on and others won't. But here you have... People also, children also being socialized with um, kindergarten, which is Elizabeth Palmer Peabody's real innovation. I didn't realize kindergarten was that old. Oh, yeah. It's been around a did long time. Did you go? I, didn't, I went to kindergarten. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I Mrs. Think, Mrs. Chadbourne taught it. Okay. And I, I cried because I was the last. I couldn't figure out how to tie my shoes. Oh, wow. Every, I, everyone else learned no problem. I couldn't get it. Another thing we have in common, I think I was in high school before I learned to tie my shoes. <laughs> and Miss Aragona was my kindergarten I, I wear loafers now yeah. anyway. Okay. Who do you want to speak about next? We have Krista McAuliffe, Helen Keller, her teacher, Ann Sullivan. Yeah. We mentioned Elizabeth Peabody. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by the Mathers. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Mather, you know, Increase Mather was president of Harvard. And Harvard's president up till that time, up until uh, early 1800s, was always a clergyman. And Increase Mather, great clergyman, president, only president of Harvard who was allowed to live in Boston as opposed to Cambridge. And it, the, the, Harvard names its houses where the undergraduates live after the presidents of Harvard. And so there's a Mather house at Harvard. There still is? There still is a Mather See, house. See, that's you know? cool. Yeah, yeah. So in name for increase, Mather. I wonder if those kids go there appreciate the fact they're going there and how old the dormitories are and who, you know, who probably stayed in the very same room they well, stayed in. Mather House is probably pretty new, probably dates to the 1960s, so I don't know that they think too much well, about that. But, yeah, I know they marked the room where John F. Kennedy lived. Really? Yeah. yeah. Do you think you have to pay extra to live there? I would imagine. I don't know. I don't know. Nobody I just gets assigned that room by accident. No, not now. No, no. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe they want Steve Jobs' room or um, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's room. So the Mathers, they were clergy. Yes. Again, education mm -hmm. and the church. Yeah. Hand in hand. Yes, to prevent that old deluder Satan. But again, the thing about, and Benjamin Franklin always was somewhat bitter because his education stops after about a year. You know, the family would have to pay for you to go to school, even though the town has to maintain a school. The Latin school, yeah, there are grammar schools in Boston. The Latin school was for those who were going to um, go on to college. Because you needed to know Latin. You needed to know Latin, Latin. That's to get why in. you go to the Latin school. Otherwise, you would go to a writing school yeah. or a grammar school. And so the family thinks he can go to college. And he's the only one of the Franklin children who goes to school. And he goes to the Latin school and is there for about a year. Then the family needs him to go to work. And they think, well, what, what's the point of sending him to college? And he was always a bit bitter about, well, not bitter because he does very well. But when he's um, a teenager, he writes one of his silence do-good essays about Harvard where he says they learn how to enter a room genteely and um, otherwise they pick up no more than they could learn at a dancing school. And he so said, he had a chip on his shoulder. He did have a chip what on his shoulder. About, yeah, about the Ivy League schools. Well, yeah, and this is even before they were an Ivy League. At that time, I think there was just Harvard, Yale, and William and & Mary. And, yeah, so he does, certainly. Also, I didn't realize Brown University was that old. Brown, Yeah, Brown is, uh, I think it's the 1770s or wow. so. Yeah, I'm, I could be wrong. Now, as far as the Mathers go, uh, we were having a little conference before the show and wondering if Jerry Mathers, the beaver, was related. And it turns out he's not. It turns out he's not. And also... Just so you know, Eminem, the rapper, Marshall Mathers, it actually said in this website on educators, no relation between Cotton Mather and Eminem or Cotton Mather and the Beaver. However, yeah. we did learn that there was a Marvel villain. That's right, Cotton Mather. Named after Cotton, with the name Cotton Mather, who actually had superpowers and he, his weapon was a cross that shot a purifying fire. Not a fire that would burn you up, but a fire that would purify you. Yeah, so cross, purify. I mean, this yeah. is a lot of symbolism there. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? All right. Yeah. Now, Helen Keller. Helen Keller, yeah. Interesting story. Perkins School for the Blind opens in Boston in the 1830s. Samuel Gridley Howe, who is a great, um, well, I, I suppose you would call him a great pioneer in education. Education for the blind. In teaching them to read using Braille. Uh, which is an, another new invention in the 19th century. 
a school strictly for the blind so they can become productive citizens. And one of the first, well, actually one of the great students who came there in the early 19th, mid-19th century was uh, Laura Bridgman, girl from New Hampshire. When she's about two years old, she is stricken with scarlet fever that leaves her blind and deaf. So the family had to keep her tied up in a chair so she wouldn't fall into a fire. You know, if you're blind, you can hear. And if you um, are deaf, you can see. So there are ways to communicate. But how do you communicate with someone who is both blind and deaf? And so how... The family brings her when she's about seven to the Perkins School, which was in South Boston. And there, a couple of teachers work with her, and she learns that these abstract symbols that they are using their fingers to press into her hand actually mean something. And this allows her to communicate, allows them to communicate with her, and then her to respond back using these abstract symbols. And she becomes a phenomenon. I mean, Howe sees her as a great way to raise money for the Perkins School because people see, what well, this is a marvel, the first deaf-blind person to learn to communicate. And Charles Dickens, when he comes to America in the 1840s, most wants to meet Laura Bridgman. You know, he meets um, Henry David Thoreau, and he meets Ralph Waldo Emerson, but Laura Bridgman, I think, impresses him the most. And everyone comes to see Laura Bridgman. And... So she lives there until she's, um, well, she dies when she's in her 50s. She's a moneymaker for the place. She is, yeah. Wonderful, very nice woman. People like talking to her, although she has opinions about people. Charles Sumner, she thought, was a very cold, and she didn't really like his, uh, she could tell a lot by you, by holding your hand. And in the 1870s, a young girl from Boston, Annie Sullivan, who is temporarily stricken blind, her and she's uh, her father is alive. Her mother has died. Her father sends her to the Perkins School because he has to work. So this young Irish girl is sent to the Perkins School. The Yankee kids who are blind don't want to have anything to do with this Irish girl. The person who befriends her is Laura Bridgman, this deaf, blind woman, now a middle-aged woman, who befriends young Annie Sullivan. Annie Sullivan recovers her eyesight and becomes a teacher. And in the 1880s, the Keller family in Alabama have a daughter who is deaf and blind. They knew about Laura Bridgman, and they knew about the Perkins School because of Laura Bridgman. So they bring their daughter, Helen, to Boston, to I South wanna, Boston. I want to hear more about Helen right after this. Okay, it's WBZ. We heard you on the radio. That's right. Now, say my name. Bradley J. Jay talking. WBZ News Radio 1030. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Turn on your radio. You've got me listening to this. Turn it on. Bradley J. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. You are. This is a Bradley J. on BZ Jay talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. We continue with Bob Allison in our back to school edition of uh, History of Bob, History with Bob. And we were talking about um, Helen Keller, and then we'll get to Krista McAuliffe. Yes. So finish up with 
So Ann, Ann Sullivan really teaches Helen Keller how to communicate the same way that um, Laura Bridgman had been taught how to communicate. And Helen Keller becomes one of the great figures of the 20th century. Although Ann Sullivan is always with her. Ann Sullivan is always kind of her translator and with her through her time at Radcliffe and beyond. There is a story that um, Samuel Gridley Howe was really unhappy with the teachers of uh, Laura Bridgman because he had thought this would be a great experiment. Does a person have an innate knowledge of God? And you would tell if someone was deaf and blind. However, her teachers thought it was imperative that they instruct her into knowing. So they screwed up the experiment. They screwed up the experiment. You know, and Howe was real. Howe was a kind of a difficult guy and wasn't happy that his experiment. You know, you look at a seven-year-old deafblind child as an experiment that does say something about you as an educator. But uh, nonetheless, I guess we'll never really know. Well, I would think that he would know that. There's no innate knowledge of the God, his God, because you find people from other continents, yeah, and they know nothing about. But they would know Jesus about dead. God. He's not necessarily a knowledge of Jesus, but a knowledge of divine, a God. A God, yes, divine. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he was enough. He he was ecumenical enough not to say, yeah, yeah. They have to be okay. A, uh, and let's finish up with Krista McAuliffe. We yeah, have McAuliffe. four minutes for Krista. Was a, a teacher from New Hampshire. And actually originally from Massachusetts and loved New Hampshire because there was a Girl Scout camp outside Manchester where she would go. And by the way, let me mention again Judith Calora, who does a terrific one-woman show as Krista McAuliffe. And then in, um, during the Reagan administration, the space program was kind of flagging in public attention to it, and the Reagan administration thought one way to increase visibility for it would be to... Um, have a civilian as part of a space mission. And so Krista McAuliffe um, applies. So one of the hundreds of teachers, thousands of teachers around the country who apply to be part of this program, and she is quite surprised when she becomes a finalist and then is selected and is going to conduct lessons from space and a great way to connect classrooms with space. And really an inspiring teacher. She actually started off teaching at a um, inner city school in Maryland when she had just finished college, but is so dedicated to her students. And then she and her husband move up to New Hampshire, where she continues teaching. Concord, right? Concord, New Hampshire, yeah. Um, and so she is teaching there and then is part of this year long program. And the, the mission in space is part of it. And then after that, she's going to go on tour and be part of, you know, NASA's promotion. And, you know, tragically, the mission, um, the space shuttle blows up. And all her students were watching. Their stu every, students all around the country are watching this. This was a, a moment, you know, let's all watch this launch. And things aren't supposed to go wrong like this, but they do. They go horribly wrong. Um, President Reagan gives a speech that night about how they um, slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God and talks about each of the um, people aboard. Ronald McNair is another. He's an African-American astronaut. So it's a great tragedy for the space program and for Krista McAuliffe, but subsequently there's a Krista McAuliffe Center out in um, Worcester, I believe, that does terrific education programs. Um, they do wonderful things with kids recreating a space shuttle mission. Kind of ironic because she really wasn't 
a science teacher. She was a general elementary school teacher, so teaching all facets of things. So an inspiring story, tragic story, but it really tells us the importance of teachers, the importance of education, which is what the um, NASA and the Reagan administration were trying to do, is showcase the importance of education. Bob, thanks for coming in. As always, this has been you know, at least as interesting as the others, and looking forward to having you come back. Bob's a professor at Suffolk University. We're very fortunate to have Suffolk here and a trustee at the Constitution Museum. And if you haven't been over there, it's cool. And you don't, uh, all you have to do is make a donation. You don't even have to make a donation, yeah. but uh, there's no real fee to get in. No. I saw that there's a yeah. don donation jar near yeah. the door. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, Welcome. Cool. Great, great place. So thank you, Bradley. Great to have you back. Thank you. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.